Welcome to the Campermont Podcast. My name is Mike Stibbs. I hope you are doing really well in these crazy times that we live in. So Tori couldn't make it tonight due to a previous engagement, so it's just Chris and myself holding down the fort. But we have a special guest. Her name is Janice Pillow. She is wife to our good friend, Jason Pillow. A few years back, I had Jason on my previous podcast, Project Revelation, and I also did a documentary style of his testimony. I left a link to that in the show notes. I really, really recommend you watching it. It will bring you to tears. But equally as powerful, Janice shares her testimony on this week's episode. As a young teenager, Janice was trafficked and sold for sex on the streets. But with God's power, she was able to overcome. And she eventually returned to the streets as a Holy Spirit-filled believer to help these girls that are being marginalized and forgotten. I highly recommend going to ArchangelMinistries91.com and sowing a seed that will go directly towards helping some of these girls out. Without further ado, roll the intro. Legit scientists right now are positing that we live in a simulation. I feel like a lot of stuff is going on in the world that's brought up a lot of these conversations, even in our last couple episodes, just with UAP disclosure and, you know, the Nephilim agenda that we always come back to. The world largely rejects their message and treats them as hostile extraterrestrials who must be stopped at any cost. How did you get into this type of ministry? And can you explain like exactly what your ministry is? So I have been working in uh, sex trafficking and rescue for over well over 20 years at this point. And the, the way I got into it is because I was actually trafficked myself when I was a teenager here in Memphis. And so I was 14 when I left home. Um, and I ended up within, in less than 24 hours traffic, like usually happens with runaways, you know? And so I just left in a, in a, I was with a single mom who had sort of a partier lifestyle and unbeknownst to her, there was, well, anyway, that's <laughs> maybe beknownst to her. I don't know. That's kind of up for debate, but there was abuse and stuff from all the men and stuff that were coming through the house. And so I um, ended up just leaving, um, angrily leaving. And then I was immediately um, trafficked by someone until I was almost 16 years old. And when I tell this story to survivors today, it literally, I literally lose credibility with them because they don't believe it. They do not. And I'm like, I'm telling the truth, mm -hmm. but they do not believe that story because he, he, it was a pedophile ring, right? And so his, he had a rule that 16 was too old. And so he cut, he just ghosted me right before my 16th birthday. And you don't, you never, never hear that story. Now, this was in the eighties when I was, when I, when I was trafficked, it was in the eighties. And so a lot of time has passed and things are just much different and darker now than they, than they, it was dark then, but it's a lot worse now. How old were you when, when you... 14. Kind of ran away 14 i was not the youngest 
um, the the youngest in that particular group that I know about was 12, but I didn't meet them all, you know, so I, I don't know what the youngest was, but I, the, there was a girl that I knew was 12 and they're, they're, most of them were about my age, you know, between like 12, 13, 14, and he would shop us at clubs mostly. Um, like nightclubs and uh, con- rock concerts and the music scene and that that kind of thing, and so I and I did not know what was going on at first, but then it became clear later on what was going on, and by that time I couldn't, you know, I was too afraid to say no. How did this? How did this person come into your life? Honestly, almost by chance, I was with a couple of girlfriends and we met him at. Um, what they call a head shop, like a smoke shop, you know? Uh, and we were just curious and just being teenagers and looking around at the cool stuff in the shop. And he was there and he struck up a conversation with us. And um, and I was just a sitting duck because I came from, um, I, was, I was lonely. I felt very unloved. I'd already been abused. You know, I had already suffered abuse. And th- that's the kind of girl that is a sitting duck, a good target for these traffickers. Because if you don't, as a matter of fact, I heard a, um, a st- uh, it was an interview, I believe, one time with a um, former tra- trafficker when they were asking him, I think he was from jail, but they were asking him how he would spot, you know, and he actually told this little story, said, oh, it's really easy. You just go and you, um, you know, at a mall or wherever they are. And if you you go up to a girl and you pay her a compliment, mm-hmm. and if she looks at you in the eyes and she says, thank you, that's not your target. But if she looks down and shuffles and can't, like is uncomfortable and can't receive it and that kind of thing, then then he goes in at that point. So it's that, it's that kind of uh, young, vulnerable, feeling unloved, low self-esteem kid that is a a very common target for traffickers. So it was, it it was just an easy, easy pickings. And um, he befriended me, actually befriended my mother also, and um, just kind of presented himself as sort of a father figure. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm going to take her under my wing and I'll, you know, straighten her out and she's angry and rebellious and all this stuff. And I'll, I'll, I'm coming along to help. And so, but it was, it didn't take long at all for that. And that was like, it, it was in the eighties. And so things were a little bit different then. we didn't have cell phones and that kind of stuff. But, um, so he, he you know, it was done. He, there's a way, there's a way. So yeah. When so when I so when he basically ghosted me, I was 16, almost 16, because he had a you know, his rule was 16 was too old and um, he just didn't have any uh, use for you. Now, like again, like what I said, we don't see that now. Never. You don't see girls that are just let go like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I consider myself incredibly fortunate and blessed and it's probably why I was able to eventually sort of recover mentally from from that whole thing. Um, so he kind of ghosted me and I was still alone and uh, alone in Memphis basically at the time. So I did kind of the couch tour with, you know, friends, acquaintances, you know, just kind of um, wherever I could find a place to land. And um, that was still a pretty dark, period as you can imagine because i didn't 
I actually would, I always believed in God. I never lost my belief in God. I had been, I had been baptized when I was eight years old. And, um, and I had a real encounter with God when I was eight years old. And I, I was always very satisfied as far as like my baptism experience that that was re a real encounter, but I was in survival mode after that. I was just surviving and, and angry, very rebellious and angry. And, um, so a lot of that energy was just anger, I think. So I, uh, spent time doing the couch tour and all that stuff and, when I was 18, about the time I was 18, I went and I finally accepted an invitation to church. Hmm. There's a couple of people in my life that w invited me on a, uh, for a long time. And I would have intentions to go and didn't go. So I went to church. I encountered Christ. I gave my life over. Um, and I ended up getting married young. I was, uh, met someone at 19 years old and it was, he was, it turned out to be, it was a very abusive marriage. Um, so it was, that was a, um, a pretty hard experience, but, um, you know, anyway, he, he, um, I didn't know any, I didn't know any different. Everybody in my life was an abuser, you know? And so nothing, nothing was nothing was clear as a danger signal to me it was it you know abuse was like a normal thing for me so um but then i you know as i started to try because i was very serious about my walk with christ i had encountered had a real experience with christ at 18 years old in this church like like the baptism of the holy spirit encounter and um, so after that, you know, of course, I was still it was just a long road of sanctification, I had a long, a lot of trauma, a lot of confusion, a lot of um, things that had to be un, uh, unraveled in my thinking and my mind. And it just took a long time. Um, but meanwhile, I had, you know, two daughters and I always had this call um, to go back into that world, you know, to go, to reach back into that, uh, community. Um, so I had a very difficult time fitting into church culture <laughs> and fit and fitting in with the church women, you know, the church, I, I just didn't, I couldn't figure out how to jive with all that. I didn't want to make cookies and knit and, and, you know, and all or paint rocks and the stuff. It was all silly to me. And I mean, I don't mean any disrespect because now, actually, I have, I kind of want to sit around and paint rocks, to be honest, but, but, at the, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at the time I just thought it was goofy and there was a whole dying world out there and, and why aren't we out there doing this, you know? And I, it could, I can never get it off my mind, the, the girls that were left behind. And so I, I start, I actually started to take some, um, adult ballet classes and stuff like that. Um, just trying to, it was actually very therapeutic for me. It was a way to sort of gain, regain, um, some discipline and control of my own temple, my own self. And so there is, a the lady who taught this dance class, her name, uh, well, she had a daughter named Kelly and we, and I stayed late one night and she was, we started talking and she was telling me basically that Kelly was um, working the streets to support a drug habit. And so we connected on that and we, we talked about it for a while that night. 
And then I went on home and it, you know, forgot about it. But meanwhile, I was really struggling with my, you know, my walk in, in church. I was so on fire for God and I was trying to learn the Bible. I had no context at all for what I was reading. So it was very confusing at first for me. Um, and people didn't have good answers, but, but I knew Christ was real. I had had some very bizarre and wild, miraculous experiences when I was living by myself on the streets. I should have died many times. There was, I mean, when I did pray, the Lord, because I would pray when I got in a really bad situation, which I did a lot of times. And so I would, out of desperation, you know, the desperation prayer, God, please help me this one time. Um, there were some things that happened that were just unbelievably bizarre that were, that were God would come in and rescue and help me even in the midst of the worst depth of my sin. He would, he would, you know, send in a, a, a lifeline to let me know he was still there. So I knew he was real. Can you share uh, one, one of those stories that you can think of? Um, when I really had that, that born again encounter with Christ um, and I was praying in the back of the church, I would come in and I was always sit in the back and just sort of hide away and then zip out as soon as it was over. Right. And the a lady came up to me and prayed for me this one particular night and boom, man, the Holy spirit came on, you know, heavy, strong. And so I was just weeping and just, you know, that, that infilling of the, the power of the Holy spirit, when you know, it's real and I didn't understand it, but I knew it was real. So I went not home cause I didn't have a home. I went, there's a, a guy that anyway, I, I could uh, stay there sometimes so I went to this guy's house. He wasn't even there. He was at work and I was, but I went in and to, to have a place to crash. Right. And so, um, so I went to sleep that night, but I went and I was reading all of the red letters in the Bible. I was so in love with Christ and I was just, I couldn't get enough. And I was so intrigued. And so I was just devouring everything I could find that was in red letters that night. So I eventually fall asleep. And I get up the next morning, um, the guy had come in and, but he was asleep and somewhere in the wee hours of the morning. And so I got up and I got in the shower and when I got out of the shower and this is a tiny little bathroom, you know, with just like a stand-up shower. And when I got out of the shower on the, the mirror, you know, the fog that is in the mirror was, mm -hmm. my, was my written, my name spelled correctly, which no one spells correctly usually. And the date, it was 1-13, January 13th that morning. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and it was written in the fog on the mirror, like someone had taken their finger and written it in the mirror. And so that was my birthday. It was the first day of the rest of my life. And I, I stood there and stared at it for a long time because I it was I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and there was nobody in the house. It was a tiny except for that guy who was asleep, and then I just to sort of because of my own curiosity. Later on, when he got up, I was like, "Did you happen to like come in the bathroom?" Which I knew that I knew that nobody had come in the bathroom. It was a tiny bathroom, but he was like, "No, what? What are you talking about?" I was like, "No, never, never mind." You know, I was like, I was like wow. never mind. So, so that was fun. 
Yeah. Wow. So were you saying that was the day that you got saved and that's what was your, like your birthday, your born again birthday. Okay. That's wow. So you, you get trafficked, your, your pimp or whatever, this pedophile, Mm -hmm. whatever guy, he, he goes to you at 16. So you're lost a couple years later, you get saved in your, you're having a very, very appropriate response to the church situation is you're, you're going to church, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're not fitting in, but the Holy Spirit's inside you and just has to start going back out on the street to to get to some of these girls. Can you can you pick up um somewhere in the story of how you you began to get back on the streets and yes. how you started to get uh you know helping some of these girls? I had just about had enough with trying to figure out how to fit in with the church. I couldn't figure out how to fit in. I I really had the sense that I was probably annoying the women. I was there. I was there every time the door opened, but um, I was really upset about it this day. And I was on my face crying out to God and I had opened the Bible and this is still, I was still very new to all this, had no context for what I was reading. And in it, it was it was a passage where the Lord was comparing Israel to a harlot. And I was so in love with Christ at that time. But so those words really pierced, really stung deep. And so I would just was crying and I was feeling like I was completely unusable and unredeemable at the time. And so I asked the Lord, I was like, I really need to know what my value is to you. I really need to know if I'm worth anything, if you can do anything, if you can use me at all. And I I will serve you no matter what you say, because you're worthy. But I just need to know where I fit in and all this. I couldn't figure it out. You know, it's like, am I, and, and I told him, I said, if I, if I am just going to be the dog getting uh, crumbs under the table, I'll accept that, but just tell me now. So I'm not disappointed. I couldn't take any more disappointment. So I just, just tell me now that if that's, that's what it's going to be. So the phone rang and I am literally bawling on my face, you know, it's like crying out this prayer in the phone. And at first I was annoyed, but then I kept thinking I need to go get this phone call. So I went and I get the phone call and it was the dance teacher. I told the ballet teacher with the daughter, Kelly, and she says, Janice, Kelly called me last night and she's been, she had been robbed and beaten and she and needed a ride. And I went and picked her up at two o'clock in the morning. And I, you know, I took her to the emergency room. She's got staples in her head and all this stuff. She's beaten up really bad, broken ribs, but she's in my house and I don't know what to do with her. And she was actually really put out with her because she had, she at that time raising her son, the grandson. So she said, I don't know what to do with her can you go talk to her? And I said, yes. And I said, I I would never done this. I'm still so absolutely new in my own faith. I I didn't have any answers, but the word, the words had just come out of my mouth, literally just hadn't even touched the floor that Lord, I'll serve you no matter what you tell me, (laughs) but I just, I just need to know what my value is. And so instead of him telling me that I got a phone call to go tell another prostitute 
that she was beautiful, that she was redeemable, that her life was worth saving and redeeming and that she was worth something and the Lord could make something of her life. And, and I believed it for her. And so I went and I told her, and the, the irony was just, was so thick in the air. And so I went and I talked to this girl, I had a great conversation with her that day, but that was literally the first time I, I went back in to reach back into that community and it was literally a phone call that brought me back in. And then from there on, you know, um, it was years of all kinds of working with all kinds of different teams and all kinds of different ministries. There's a lot of people in and out, but it's grown and developed through the years. Well, wow, that's, a, that's an awesome story. It's like, here you are, like you said, you know, like before you even got the words out of your mouth and God's already answering your prayer. And then you're telling this girl all the things that God's telling you, you know, I mean, it's amazing how he does that. So, but how did you, like Jason had told me that he met you um, helping out with like secure, like doing security type of deals on the street. We met at a conference and it was a conference that, that I had organized and I tried to do it for my church. And then the church didn't, I think the pastor at the time, he has passed away now, but he, I think he didn't think that I was actually going to pull it off. And he had told me yes, until he told me, yes, I could do this until it came about that it was really going to happen. And then he kind of backpedaled and said, you can't do this here. And so, cause I, it was, you know, kind of one of those fringe Christian conferences, right? It was, uh, we had Russ Isdar and LA Marzulli there. And I was trying, it was kind of an attempt for me to help a dying, struggling church to kind of reinvigor re with some new life and new energy. And, things that were on my heart always to um, reach the younger generation that had legitimate questions is once they figured out that I was actually doing it, I think they kind of said yes to sort of pat me on the head and pacify me mm -hmm. at the time. And then once they figured out it was actually happening, they were like, you can't, this is crazy. You can't do this here. And so I just found another venue and we ended up doing it, you know, but that's, that's where actually I met Jason and he, you know, Jason had been already helping doing ministry for people coming out of satanic abuse. And what started happening at meeting places and conferences is that people that were doing sex trafficking work rescue and people that were doing the satanic ritual abuse stuff kept finding each other in the same rooms. Mm. And we're realizing how much overlap there was. And so that's when, yeah, so he approached me. He's like, hey, do y'all need some extra help with security? And I'm like, always, yeah. So mm -hmm. so what did that What did that look like? He would he would just like accompany you guys on the streets? Yeah, and at, at that time, we would go out, and this is where um, he mentioned to me earlier tonight about bringing in maybe how the, the, the role of the females, the role of the women, how they, how they can do this well, or could, and all, always led by the Holy Spirit, of course, because I, I've i gone a, around throughout the years and trained different teams and talked a couple of times to like sheriff's departments of different towns and stuff like that, um, you know, giving them some information on um, what's going on in trafficking. And I've what I've learned in doing some training of other people is that 
I had no idea how not street smart the average person was. And I also didn't have any idea of how street street smart I apparently was because we, you know, to me, it was just normal. Um, and so all that to say led by the Holy spirit and with wisdom and that kind of thing, I'm not saying go out and do it like I do necessarily is I'm trying to preface with that. But what I would do is like, it's, it's actually really easy. Um, of course, things have changed a little bit since COVID, the COVID shutdown changed how a lot of the, um, the trafficking, how they advertise and that kind of thing. But at the time you could either just go out on the streets where the tracks are, were any major city, you probably know where they are around your town, you know, the CD motel areas and stuff like that. Um, or, and, or answer escort ads, which of course, then you need the females in order to do that so that you're not assaulting your guys with images and stuff. Right. So you get the females to answer escort ads. That's where you find trafficking victims. And you just, and you just very honestly say, Hey, I'm with this group. We're around give what we would do is give out gifts. We'd have make gift bags. And we say, would you like, you know, would you like one of these gift bags? We can meet you somewhere and hand one, hand one to you. And, um, and sometimes they'll say, yes, you know, if you're giving out freebies and, or whatever, they'll, they'll say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll meet you for that. And so it, you just make a first connection by giving out gift bags and then you establish a friendship, you know, and you just start talking with them and then, and it takes them a while to trust you. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have a, a false idea of how the rescue stuff happens. They're not just waiting there for, you know, someone come open a car door and I'm going to jump in it and run off. They do not trust anybody for good reason. And so it takes uh, it takes a long time of building a rapport and building a relationship um, in order for the, to get to the point of, you know, talking about, hey, if you, if you want out, you know, we can help you get out, you know, um, and go you know go that way now i a lot of times have and and a lot of times have been sort of criticized by other groups by doing it this way but i have always preferred uh, to do some of this stuff by myself and and i know that may sound odd but it's easier for me and it i get less attention um there's less attention the pimps are always there they're always watching there's nothing they don't see there's no text, phone call, anything that they don't see on these with these. They're watching every move these girls make. Um, so, you you know, <clears throat> I could slip in and out, you know, with a, a little minute or two of like, here's some stuff. And, and if they if they if they think that, you know, I'm just giving out makeup and they don't care if you give out like Bibles and stuff like that, it couldn't they could care less about stuff like that. It's at most kind of an annoyance to them and I can slip out in and out real fast. But if I come in with like a, a bunch of guys, a bunch of men that are flanking me, then all of a sudden there's a tension, you know, and they're, they're like, who are these guys and what are they doing? But if it's just little old me, it's easier for me to sort of zip in and out and I'm kind of not raising hackles. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But now what Jason and we had some other guys at different times that were working with us. Um, it depended on what the night was. It depended on if we were actually extracting a girl that night, then we would need, it's, you know, it, depending on what we were doing, you know, guys in a car over here, I'm going to go in over here. 
you know, there were some tense moments where they're being very monitored and very watched by these men. And I'm having to kind of talk her into uh, being comfortable enough and trusting enough and helping her to um, um, be have the courage basically to step out. That's crazy. So you're going to, you're, you're going to go in there and you've built a relationship with whatever, you know, girl at the time it is. And, and now you've got a plan to extract her from her pimp. Right. Yeah. That's, that's gangster. <laughs> Give us the nitty gritty. Like if you're able to, because I want people to understand, want them to, to have a, a picture in their head of what ministry looks like, because a lot of people are afraid. Like I said, there was a girl, there was one girl, he was basically kind of an informant for us for a long time. Um, and she was, um, I, I considered her a close friend. I really, really, truly loved this girl. And I'll punchline it and say that we never did get her out. But in the, in the interim time, she helped us solve other cases and get other girls out. So she was constantly helping us with these other cases and these and other girls, but we were not able to get her out. And she and I don't know if she's alive today or not, to be completely honest. Um, but I really, truly have such a love for her. And I like to relay this story because I have because I had a close relationship with her. I can tell you so many of the details of how of, a, you know, this is how it happens. But she, she was, uh, she came from foster care. Um, Sarah, I'm going to call her Sarah. It's not really her name, but Sarah, she, um, we met her. She was 12 years old when she ran away from the group home. She went to Chicago on a bus. She gets off the bus in Chicago. Here she is, this 12 year old girl running away. She and then she gets off the bus, and there is a guy who's a, who turns out to be a gangster disciple who's right there at the bus stop. Now, how easy is this? this is like a catfish, you know, like just waiting at the, at the with his mouth agape, right? Just waiting at the bus stop. Here's this little girl that comes off of by herself, and so he approaches her and says, "Hey, do you need a you need a place to stay?" And she's she's like, well, "Yeah, I need a place to." stay. Day. And of course, she's, you know, full of them and vinegar like I was angry at the world and all that stuff. This guy looked cool, you know, so she's like, yeah, I need a place to stay. So he takes her to this house. He's like, all right, can you come with me? Takes her to this house that's basically a, a mansion. She has a big, beautiful house. It looks really, you know, beautiful and like a rich person lived there on the outside. But then when she went inside, the there were bars on all the windows and all the doors were locked. There's a man sitting at every door. And she was confused at first about what sh where she was and what was going on. So she's just watching and kind of, you know, observing for a while. And then she asked to use the bathroom. She said, hey, is do you have a bathroom I can use? And he said, he says, yeah, come here. I'll show you your options. And she's like, okay, thinking like there's more bathrooms. I mean, she didn't know what that meant. And so, so he takes her... Um, to this one room where she had been watching these men kind of coming and going from this one room. So he takes her to this one room and he brings her in there. And there's all these girls that are lined up on mats on the floor. And there's maybe a dozen or so. Okay. They're all lined up on mats, completely motionless. And there was a, one man that was in there and it was his job to come around and inject them with heroin to keep them completely out. 
So they were completely motionless. They had their hair done, makeup on, nails done, all that stuff, totally motionless. So he says to her, he says, he says, here's your options. You can do it this way or you can do it this way. And he flashes her money. And so he was offering to teach her the game. They call it the game, right? And so she's like, well, I'm going to do it that way. You know, it's like if you're going to. And so he's so he teaches her the game. Now, when she told me this story later, she was probably 19 years old by the time she's 18 or 19. By the time she's like relaying the story to me, I'd take her out to dinner and she is telling me all this. And it probably is the first time she's ever told this story. Nobody listens to her. Right. So she stopped for a second and she said, I really didn't have an option, did I? I said, no, you did, you did not have an option. She was she was going to be doing it one way or another, 12 years old. So so she learns the game from him, and he sells her off to this other guy. But when I met her, she was her handler, pimp, you know, whatever, trafficker, who, whatever you want to call him, was um, a Haitian guy who practiced a Haitian type of voodoo. And he would he would put her through certain rituals, um, a, a ritualistic type of abuse. He would take her. He was obsessed with the number six, and he would take her to the point of death and resurrection six times, over and over and over. He'd take her to the point of almost dead, and then bring her back exactly six times. And so it was a very ritualistic type of abuse, and it was very humiliating. The things that he would do. Um, you know, very degrading, humiliating things that he would be doing to her. Well, she ended up having a child by him, a, a girl. And um, he put the baby through some weird ritualistic type things. He had the baby wear a crown for three days. Um, he called as a nickname, called the baby his little killer. And she would, she, when she would tell me this, she kind of would laugh it off. And she's like, gives like, yeah, you know, she just kind of think it was just a joke or something. And of course I'm watching all this and I knew what was going on, but I, it wouldn't have helped for me to tell her. Um, it wouldn't have helped anything for me to say anything to her at the time, but he, this was what, you know, he was doing, he was putting, he was, he was programming the baby. So, <clears throat> You know, and telling all the while telling her lies, telling her that they were going to have a family and all this stuff. And she was, you know, he'd keep her on the hook thinking that one day they're going to have this better life. And, you know, uh, very Stockholm Syndrome type of mentality. Um, if you've ever known or even heard of like the women that are in like abusive marriages, um, that kind of mentality, it's you know what it would take too long for me to to but you could like google stockholm syndrome they develop a love for their abuser because it's a way of survival if if i can get him to love me he'll be better you know it's like the only way to survive i've got to get him to like me basically <clears throat> so by the time the baby was two years old um she was showing signs of sexual abuse. Um, she was acting out sexually Two, This child was two years old acting out sexually. So um, Sarah, she calls me one day 
on um, the phone and she uh, is hysterical. And she asked me to meet her. She's like, do you, she's like, do you have time to meet me? She's like, can you just meet me in the parking lot? She said, I need a prayer and a hug. I just need a prayer and a hug. And I was, and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll come meet you. And so I went to go meet her and she very stoically stone faced, like she always did walked across the parking lot, like, you know, just very stone faced, <clears throat> got in the car, you know, jumped in my car and absolutely fell apart. I mean, fell apart. He had taken the baby to Miami and she knew where he was taking her. And he had a, uh, a plant in the DCS and the foster care system in Miami that would allow him to traffic the baby in Miami. So they have, you know, plant foster families where they can, they just use them as a front. Um, and, and he had parental rights, which made it so much more tricky to try to extract, improve and all this stuff. So this is the game. This is how they do the game. Those girls will get in serious trouble if they end up pregnant by anybody else except for the trafficker. Now, and it's on them. It's supposedly their responsibility while they're being raped many times a day to not end up pregnant by any of these other guys. But when, you know, they're breeding basically the next generation of slaves. So he he took the baby to Miami and she just absolutely came unglued. She knew she's like, she's like, I know what that means, Miss Janice. I know what that means. And she is just uh, she was feral. She was animalistic and feral um, like any mother would be, you know, to try to go get her child. So she didn't know what else to do except for try to make enough money to go get on a bus to Miami. And you just couldn't talk her into any logic at all. So she was trying to um, turn enough tricks to make enough money for a ticket to Miami. She was going to go get this baby. Now, I knew that that was probably going to not happen, but I couldn't tell her that, you know, she was, she was focused. So she had, she hadn't slept. She was in pain. She called me to come pray for her this day because she could, I don't, how do you pray for that? What do you say? I, you know, and I, I prayed for her. I prayed for the baby. <clears throat> she asked me to take her to Walgreens to put her cash that she had on one of those like green dot cards. They use those like go cards or whatever. <clears throat> so we're standing in line at the Walgreens and she was so exhausted and she was broken out in hives from head to toe from stress. And she was in pain she was exhausted and she handed me this wad of cash and she's like, I, she couldn't even see straight to count it. She's, she's like, can you count this? I can't even count. And so it was $287. I'll never forget because that was basically the price of her soul and the price of her soul that she, how, how do you price that? How, how is that all that it's worth? How is that? How are these men okay with that? And what she was going through to try to rescue her daughter, which she, by the way, did not rescue. She was, she, you know, she had her own contacts in Miami. She was trying, she was doing her best. 
but ultimately she was unsuccessful. And the, the only way I knew that the only way she'd have a chance to go to court and do the whole thing and try to get this child back would be if she were out and clean. That's the only way we'd have a snowball's chance was to get her out and get her clean and get her life straightened out because then you're talking about, the, you're basically talking about um, tattling on the mafia. If, you know, these girls will not, they will not testify against these guys. They take all the rap for all of all of the crime, all of the stuff that they're into, they take the rap for everything because they they their charges end up, you know, it's like I'll bail you out. They have a whole system of how they do it. You know, the girl's supposed to take the rap for the the stolen car, the there or the drug running and the the rap for whatever the charge is. The girls will take the rap for it. They have a whole system of who bails who out and all this stuff. And, you know, and when they're, you know, who takes over, if somebody's in jail, you know, they have a system of who comes up to the top, who's in charge of this, that, or the other. And, um, you know, but if they talk, if they testify against these guys, it's worse than a, a woman who's afraid of like a psychopath husband. This, you're talking about a network that reaches at this point globally, but you know, there she has a whole network of people that are looking for her, that are out for her, and the the justice system fails. There, it just doesn't. God is big, and Jesus can save and protect, and He does. And I've seen that happen. Um, but they're scared to death, and I can't blame them. How are you able to like emotionally handle this? That particular night, I was alone. Uh, but Jason's been with me. With with we had things going on with this particular girl as well at different on different nights. Me personally, you have to remember because I was also trafficked. I have an ability to compartmentalize. It's not as severe. I, I can dissociate to a degree. It's not as severe as like the ritualistic abuse. It's not like I have altered personalities, but I can shut down and shut it off. Um, in the moment, I'm crying with her. You know what I'm saying? And in the moment, I am, you know, in the the weight of it, there was a night when this other girl, she was probably 14, honestly, um, in this hotel room, and she's too scared to meet me because she's underage. But they come out and they hand me her baby, her infant. And they say, here, hold him for a second and run back in the hotel room. And I had a moment there of, I here I am alone with this baby in my arms and in a car. And I'm thinking, should I just drive off? You know, it's like, what do I do? And so, but then it's kidnapping, right? The, the way the system is set up. So, and instead I prayed. And I prayed over this child that was in my arms for just a few minutes. And I, and I relished this time with, with this baby that was in my arms, knowing the plans that they had for him. But, but I, this is one little boy that I did connect with. And so I prayed over him and I absolutely 100% believe with every ounce of my being that the Lord answers those prayers and he shows up for those children, just like he showed up for me. And that's how I process it. That's how I can deal with it. 
I believe it as much as I believe my own flesh and blood in front of me. I know that the Lord answers and that he's there with them and that one way or another, he will rescue them even if, because at some point with some of these girls along the way, you know, you have to readjust your paradigm to, and reassess what rescue means. And uh, some of them, we can't, some of them don't come out alive. There's many, many of those cases that we've worked too, where they find them later on in a back alley or they're just disappearing. Nobody ever finds them, but you know, some of them don't make it, they don't make it out alive. But if that girl is saved and this is the easiest group to minister to this, you don't have to be in a, they are so hungry for it. You know what I'm saying? They are, they are the absolute opposite of what you find generally in the culture where everything's so hostile against Christianity. They are living with the devil himself. You don't have to come in and, and convince them of, of God or Satan or anything else. They know. And so you come in with love and they just absolutely eat it up. And so to be able to lead them to Christ, even if you can't, even if you can't extract them, if they happen to pass away and before you're able to actually get them out, but are they not just as rescued? If the Lord comes and gathers them in his arms and and brings them home, that is a rescue. And so that is, and so that's where I focus my attention on leading them to Christ. If we can actually get them out, that's a bonus. But if we lead them to Christ, then they are free. I'm just kind of listening to this and my heart is just breaking hearing the story and the reality for so many people is that they're living they're living that type of life. Um and yeah, no, you you're like you're right, Janice. Like I think a lot of us who aren't in that world, we have this picture of what rescue looks like, you know, someone kicking down a door and coming in and, and not realizing, um, that that's, I'm sure that's one aspect of it for some people, but for many, they've been brainwashed, right? right? The, the, uh, trauma-based mind control, like to, uh, to some of us, they would look like they're free. You're like, well, you're, you're out walking the streets. Um, why, you know, what do you mean? You're, you're being trafficked, you know, you're, you're involved, you're, you're helping your, uh, trafficker or pimp or whatever you want to call them, not realizing like they've been brainwashed. So they are still captive. Right. And, and so if you don't mind me, I don't mean to inter inter interrupt you, but there's, it reminds me of this, of another girl, a different girl. And she, when I talked with her, she would explain to me the different altars that she had. She had cat altars, very common in sex trafficking, right? There's a beta beta kitten programming. She had cat altars. She spoke eight different languages and could not have, she had no recall of how she learned them. Okay, most people, most average person on the street would assume that she's just kind of, for I don't mean to be crass, but like your average crack whore. She spoke eight languages and it could not, she had no memory of how she learned them. But I connected with her two or three times 
and she was sick this one one day that she called me she was sick and she asked she was really sick and she asked if if i could bring her chicken soup and tylenol that's what she asked for i mean it's so simple and so and so yeah I'll, i'll bring you chicken soup and tylenol so i go to this hotel that she was at she was at a hotel and she was on the third level of this hotel where i had to go inside and up you know to to get to her room so i break my own personal rules to go up there because she was sick and my mother's heart was just you know i wanted i was just taking the risk to go connect with her and give her what she needed chicken soup right because on the top level um this is where the street wise stuff comes in you know so on the top level is where they have their gunners they have their security there was probably at least 15 or 20 guys with guns in those rooms uh, on this upstairs level. And in a lot of these hotels, you have the front desk or they're in on it. You know what I'm saying? They're being paid. And so they, they know what's going on. And so everybody's kind of, it really truly is a conspiracy, you know? And so, but I'm breaking my own rules to go up and, and give her chicken soup. Okay. So I go, so go in and she's telling, you know, she's telling me, um, about her two kids and we're connecting. And, and she told me, she says, look, I'm telling you, this guy is my pimp. I'm saying, they won't say the word pimp. She's like, this guy is my pimp and I am uncontrolled and I can't, they're doing this and X, Y, and Z. I'm like, I understand. I understand. She's like, I'm going to leave all this information about him. She's like, if something happens to me and she told me where she's going to write it down and hide it in that room so that it would be left for someone to know all this information if something were to happen to her and and i just told her yes knowing that there's probably no way i could ever actually go back into that room and find this but i'm just giving her some what am i going to say but yes right so i I was like yeah okay i i got it i got so she so we i hung out a little too long in this room It, it got their attention right and so we're talking too long we're having a great conversation so there's a knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. And she starts freaking out. She's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So she's looking and she looks at the people and it's it's uh, their shooter. They have a guy that's their shooter. And there was a, um, a guy in there with me that, that day. And so I, I was like, she's like, okay. She's like, you're my aunt and you're just visit. And she quickly comes up with this story. Uh, got it. So she opens the door and we just kind of pass we just kind of, you know, not, you, you don't ever look in the eyes. We just sort of nod and kind of walks, kind of skim past. So we got out alive, right? <clears throat> but then we're leaving her behind, okay? Because what else? We, we're leaving her there. So later on, I find out through another girl later on that they beat her so badly that the, the, the community there was not sure if she lived or not for that encounter because I brought her chicken soup. And so though that is the kind of duress and fear that they're under. So that's why they're too scared to leave. That's why they're too scared to talk. They're surrounded and they have nowhere else to go. There's so many people in this country that that don't come from good families that, that, that are born into these kind of systems. They don't have anyone to call and say, hey, can I come crash on your couch or whatever? This is one of the reasons why I tell all the guys that volunteer and want to come in for the security teams and extraction teams and stuff like that. 
always start off and break the ice by telling them this is the most taxing, stressful, and burdening job you will ever do. Because we don't walk in Beverly Hills or, you know, the upper echelon neighborhoods, and we don't get, you know, treated uh, well by law enforcement and stuff at all. And we are under constant scrutiny, constant attack. Uh, you make a lot of enemies in this field. However, it's also the most rewarding task you will ever do. Some of the greatest moments for me are, are definitely in the, the what some people call the little things. Being able to take a girl out to dinner, like I, I, this is my favorite thing to do. If if you can get, if you can get them out to dinner, you what people don't realize is that that is a privilege that's been uh, extended to them if they'll allow them to come out with me or anybody for a couple hours at a time. So you're talking about the, at this point, this is a girl that is in 100% submission. She has to be on her P's and Q's if she's going to get this level of permission to be, you know, extended the the um, luxury of coming out to dinner with me or somebody else. But to they never get stuff like vegetables and salads. They're very malnutritioned. So, you know, just giving them little things and to see the look on their face when they get a lemon wedge in their tea and they're so excited to get, she's like, they feel like it's really fancy to get like a lemon wedge on their tea. And this one girl, I uh, all that it took for this one girl to get, um, to have a chance to get out is that she's, she, this other girl, she was being trafficked by her mother that's not uncommon and people are surprised to hear that, but it's not that uncommon, but all she needed was a certain uh, record at a school in order, you know, she needed this document from a school in order to uh, enroll in uh, some kind of classes so that she could start to get herself a different life. And she didn't have a car and she didn't have a way to get there. And so for a couple of years, she'd been waiting on somebody to drive her to this office just to get this document that she needed to to go to progress on in school so that some at sometimes that's all it takes and it's literally that easy as to giving her a ride to go to get this document for school but i had i had taken her out to dinner and by the way this is where you get intel you take them out to dinner and they download they give you all the information and you just take notes you know and and i in any room that we've ever been in Hands down, I've always had the most intel on what's actually going on on the streets. And that actually surprises me every single time. But that's how you, it's, I'm just being their friend and they want to talk. But this girl, she asked me, she was so excited to have vegetables that, you know, she never got vegetables. And then we were leaving, we're or getting ready to like wrap up. And she said, do you mind if I have some pie? She's like, can I, can I please have a piece of pie? She said, I have been dreaming about this pie since October. She's like, I've been me, I've been wishing since October that I might have this piece of pie. 
And I'm like, you can have the whole pie. You know, you know, it's like, how much pie you want? We're gonna get you all the pie. You know, it's like so you, you can take it with you. You know, but those are it is the the best. It is my blessing. I don't it to me. I don't feel like I'm doing some great saintly thing. It is my privilege. It's my honor to be that person to get to do that. Wow. Wow. Bro, Jason, let's go get him, dude. Let's go get him all right now. Um, so yes, so for real, um, Jason and Janice, they've got they've uh, teamed up with some other people. They've got a really, really awesome ministry, Archangel Ministries 91.com. Is that correct? Is that's the website? Yeah. Ar- Archangel Ministries 91.com. You can go to that website right now and hit that donate button and give as much or as little money as you want. If you guys are getting intel from them, right? Because I know they're not going to give intel to cops. But if you're getting intel and you understand the structure and you're able to go to a detective and say, hey, look, this is how their system works, right? Why aren't we hearing about this on the news like every single day? that detectives and the task task force are taking down these rings. Uh, Well, I was going to say because of the people who are involved. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's from the top down that it's the issue. Uh, Most people know me that I'm not really particularly political one way or the other, but I will say when Trump was in office, he had established an order that was specifically targeting traffickers and stuff in America and infiltrating their rings in order to bring them down. However, when Biden took over, he wiped all that away. And he's been steadily building an infrastructure that is bringing these children in from the border. 85,000 is the number right now. And these children are being handed off to traffickers without them so much as even vetting it. But what do you expect from a pedophile that's in the presidential office? Yeah, man. Um, it just seems, it just seems so backwards. Like that's where I just, I still ask the question, like knowing what you guys know, I mean, how could, I mean, without, I mean, the only way you could have peace is through Jesus, man, because like it would be ripping me and ripping me apart inside. I mean, hearing about, yeah. Um, shoot, man. Again, that's why I say, let's go get them. And the way that we could do that is we can help Archangel Ministries um, out with some finances, archangelministries91.com. And that does help out because what we're talking about now, uh, you know, taking these girls out to dinner, bringing them supplies and stuff like that, all of that costs money. You know, for me to build a security team and train them the way they're supposed to be trained so they know what they're looking for, their skills are on point, that costs money. Ammo is not cheap. Time off work to train these guys is not cheap. Uh, Building the ministry teams with uh, other women like Janice and stuff like that that will go out and talk to these girls and stuff because you can't send a guy to do it because they'll automatically suspect that he's a John or that he wants something from them. So it has to be a woman, uh, you know, to bring those girls in and train them to be able to do what Janice can do. You know, again, that takes time. 
that takes money, that takes resources. And then, you know, the expenditures of taking these girls out to dinner and stuff like that, or if we're able to straight up buy their freedom, that takes money. You know, it could be $500, depending upon what location in the world you're in. It could be 4000 It could be 250000 for one person. Yeah. But what is the cost of a soul? What is the cost of a life? Wow, man. So Chris, this is, this is how my mind starts to think is like, what, you know, is like, why don't churches do this for one thing? Why aren't they? I know. And I know, I know they do. I know there's churches out there that do stuff like this. I mean, obviously we're the church, you know, you guys are the church, but like my mind just goes off the grid with this stuff. But I even think of it from our little tiny sphere of influence that we have maybe an average of a thousand views on each show that we do, which would represent, you know, one person who who is able to donate. I mean, of how much of an impact that even one ministry could have if a thousand people just gave 10 bucks or if they were able to do like 20, 30, 40, if a thousand people would do that of of how much of an impact that could have on a society, on a culture, on a specific person's life, as Jason said, like, you know, how much money, how, what's the price that you put on someone's freedom? I mean, and you know, I, I, I admit it. I'm, I'm guilty, guilty party. Number one, man. Like I'm not thinking about this stuff. I live in a nice, I live in Montana, Nothing happens here. You know what I mean? Like as far as I know, but I've been in LA. I've, I lived in LA. I see, I know what goes on there. And just cause you don't see it doesn't mean it's not going on. But Chris, I'm just saying that, man, even with our small little sphere of influence, like we could do a lot of damage on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, a journey of a, of a million miles starts with one step, you know, um, every, every little bit counts. Um, and you asked me Mike about, you know, why aren't more churches doing this kind of thing? And I think, unfortunately, a lot of churches and a lot of people, um, they want to pretend like this stuff isn't happening because it makes them feel uncomfortable. All these emotions that we've been feeling, hearing these stories, people want to pretend like that stuff isn't real um, because it makes you feel uncomfortable. And I think it goes even, I think it does go even deeper than that in the sense that people have been uh, programmed essentially to not believe that this stuff is happening. I mean, my Anaka was just telling me the other day, um, the, uh, the, the statistics, and I can't actually remember what she said, but it was like jarring the statistics of church going people in America that would call themselves believers that actually even believe in like a biblical worldview is insanely small. I want to say it was like 18%. Um, and there's a large percentage of, of church going confessing Christians that I think don't even believe in like Satan as a literal being or entity. Um, and so I think that just comes down to programming. Mike, we've talked about it before. 
evolution, right? Being taught in schools, that's to disprove the existence of God and creation. Um, and just all these different philosophies that are taught in schools that are taught, um, you know, I say programming, we talk about like television programming, right? Um, that's one aspect I think of, of programming is, um, whatever those influences are that are coming through what we're consuming. Um, so yeah, man, I just think people want to pretend like this stuff isn't happening because it's uncomfortable. And then to some degree, if you know it's happening, are you not responsible to do something about it? Whether it's to pray, whether it's to, you know, give financially, whether it's to actually go out and do what Jason and Janice are doing. Um, but we, yeah, we just can't, we can't pretend like it's not happening because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, let me, let me uh, speak on that a little bit. Cause one, Chris, you just, Define cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is, to sum it up, someone is so enthralled with their own happiness, their own illusion that they live with, that the truth actually causes them physical pain. And they can't deal with it. They can't cope. Having said that, if you know this is going on and you choose not to act, then you have condemned those victims by your inaction. To choose not to act is an action. If you walk to your car from the mall and you pass an alley and you see a guy beating a woman, getting ready to rape her, and you choose to ignore it and walk past, then that woman's blood is on your hands whether you want to accept it or not. That is the harsh reality of the world that we live in. Right. Yeah. So what I'd like to challenge uh, anybody listening to is just, just pray about um, what you can do. If it's prayer, if it's literally like praying for their ministry, prayer is powerful. It's effective. Um, if it's giving, um, then give. Um, if it's volunteering, then volunteer. Um, but let's just, let's not, let's not pretend like this isn't happening and just go on to the next podcast episode and, you know, listen to some, some crazy stories just for, for entertainment. Let's do something. Amen. Like don't even sign up for a membership. If you're listening to this episode, like just take, take that extra money and, and give uh, to this ministry right here. But Janice, um, you got you got some girls on the line right now that are pretty close to to being saved. I would just say, I mean, to accepting Jesus. Oh yeah, they're they are so. It really is so easy. They are they're so starving for it, and if you and they're so ready to receive prayer because they're desperate, you know. Yeah. So they allow you to pray for them so easily. They're so grateful for it. Um, so yeah, the, the ministry part is actually very easy. And then they learn, I actually hear stories sometimes of them praying for each other and, and moments that they have. And there was, um, a day when a girl witnessed a murder and, um, these are things that are a day in the life for, for how they live. And she witnessed a murder and she, because I had been praying with her 
Um, she instinctively prayed for this man. She's like, Lord Jesus, please take his soul. And she said she saw peace come over his face at the moment that he died. And she was just completely convinced, and I believe her, that the Lord came and uh, received him because, you know, she asked him to, you know, she's like, come, come and, you know, take him, you know, have mercy on him in this moment. And, but th the fact that she, that was her instinctive reaction when she was right there and witnessed this murder is, I think, a miracle and, and yeah. beautiful in itself, you know? Yeah, good stuff, guys. Uh, thank you so much, Janice. You are a, a warrior. Thanks. <laughs> You're yeah, y'all are amazing. I appreciate y'all. <sighs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. God bless. And like just just know that I've got I've got a fire up under me. So um we'll get we'll get this done. Thank you. On behalf of Chris, Tori, and myself, we really want to thank you for making it to the end of this video. Again, you could go to ArchangelMinistries91.com to sow a seed that will go directly towards helping some of these girls out. Until next time, God bless. Came down the top vanity, brought the proliferation of humanity. A fallen sons of the most high God took advantage of the planet he made, forming the holy alliance of evil and look at the daughters of Adam in vain. Then the flood rain came to restore his creational order to how he arranged. Put the disembodied spirits of the giants still want a war, still want to kill in the court. see the blood of the innocent spill on the floor. That's the demoniac and the kind of issue with combined. The healer restores image bearers in his second chance when he coming back because he bringing a sword. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah. Welcome to Camp Herman. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah. Welcome to Camp Herman.